0: Remember what you said you return that I might live In my father's house
1: Not only is it possible to sin, but the truth of the matter is, everyone does. I mean, think about it. All of the heroes of the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, fell into sin. For example, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David. In the book of Romans in chapter 3, here's quite an indictment against mankind. In Romans chapter 3 in verses 10 to 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, no not one.
0: The Bible says that Noah found favor in God's eyes, and so God chose to save Noah and his family from the impending flood. But shortly after mankind is preserved through Noah's family, Scripture shows us the failures of this remnant. Today, Pastor Mike teaches on this portion of the Bible to remind us that we are all fallen and not one of us is above sin. The Bible speaks about Noah as a righteous man, yet he still failed in his old age. But the good news is that there is one who is faultless, Jesus Christ. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 9 as he begins his message, All Fall Short.
1: Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 9. And the text that we're going to be treating is found in verses 18 through 29. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. And this message, the title is, All Fall Short. All Fall Short. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Now the sons of Noah, who went out of the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And make Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. Okay, so picking up where we left off last time, Noah and his family have just emerged into a world from which the ungodly had been removed by God's terrible judgment that is, the flood. But notice we discover the new citizens, that would be Noah and his immediate family, the new citizens of this new world are also sinners and are acting ungodly, like those who have gone before them. You see, the evil that was in the world, which brought forth God's judgment upon it, was on that ark and in the hearts of Noah and his family as well. You know, you would think after living through the cataclysmic events that had just taken place and God preserving Noah, entering into a covenant with him, this was all a part of our previous studies, they would have walked the straight and the narrow. Wouldn't you imagine that's the way that it would have played out? But nevertheless, it did not. But can you relate to this? You know, how many times has God done something really great for us and we've escaped the judgment of God and... Rather than being judged, God has dealt with us in mercy and forgiveness. He's patient and long-suffering. And you think that would, you know, cause us to want to serve him even more completely, only to find that we don't, right? We could probably all relate to this. I don't even know if we could fault Noah for what is being described for us here in this text of Scripture. So here's Noah, drunk, he's naked, which led to the sin of his son, Ham. And I'll explain all of this and what this represents in just a moment. You know, it just reminds me of that text of scripture recorded first in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And we need to remember that. Remember that. Our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. You know, we think we got it wired and, you know, we would never disobey the Lord and, And what do you know, an opportunity arises for temptation and sin, and then we gravitate towards it. Not only gravitate towards it, at times we run towards it. Now, this last section of Genesis chapter 9 can be divided into three parts. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. First of all, we have Noah's fall. Secondly, Ham's sin. And then thirdly, the prophecies that were uttered by Noah because of these events. Okay, so let's break down these three categories for you, these three divisions, and we'll take them in that order, which brings us to our first point, and that is the fall of Noah. So according to our text, Noah is drunk, Noah is naked, all of a sudden he becomes your garden variety type of a sinner. So what do we learn from this? Well, It's this, anyone can sin, and no one is above and beyond temptation. You know, think about it. When we're first introduced to Noah, here in the book of Genesis in chapter 6, in verse 9, we are told simply, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. In the New Testament, Peter, in his epistle, in his second epistle, in chapter 2, in verse 5, we are told there in describing Noah who he was, what he was all about, he is recommended to us as a preacher of righteousness. So think about it. These two wonderful descriptions. Noah was someone who walked with God and was a preacher of righteousness. You see, Noah possessed an excellent character. Listen, I got to tell you something. I'd be glad if this was God's assessment of me, or in fact, of any of you. You know, just saying, here's Mike over here and Nancy, who walk with God and are preachers of righteousness. What a beautiful way to be described by God. That was God's assessment. That wasn't their bragging about themselves. This was God's point of view, God's assessment of who Noah was. Gang, listen, if he could sin, that is Noah, so could any of us. You know, just a side note here, if I can depart from the text for just a moment and draw your attention to something I think is pretty important. The scriptures are painfully honest, you know? And I think it just validates the truthfulness of them because the Bible and it being painfully honest as it is is proof of the divine inspiration of the scriptures. Think about it. If this was something that was drummed up by man, right, He would have put his best foot forward. He certainly wouldn't have painted the picture of him failing and falling and drunken and naked. And, you know, there would be an absence of those sorts of, of things. But the scriptures are painted in the colors of truth. And there's no effort whatsoever in the Old and New Testament alike to cover man's sins or make excuses for their sins at all. And I think it just validates the inherency of the scriptures that are found in the Bible. Well, anyway, if Noah fell, let's get back to our text. If Noah fell, we're surely not exempt from it either. Now, I want to take this one step further, if I may. Not only is it possible to sin, but the truth of the matter is everyone does. I mean, think about it. All of the heroes of the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, fell into sin. For example, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David. In the book of Romans in chapter three, here's quite an indictment against mankind. In Romans chapter three in verses 10 to 12, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Folks, there was only one righteous in this world ever that will ever be. Only one righteous, and that is the righteous one who is Jesus Christ. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So quite an indictment against mankind if it wasn't for God intervening on our behalf, right? But there's something else here that I want to draw your attention to. There's another lesson for us to be learned from Noah. Think about this: Noah, before the flood, we are told, lived 600 years, and in his life, in his youth, he was absolutely blameless. The sin of Noah's being drunkard in this drunken stupor, right, happened in his later years which then went on to mar his record. But this didn't happen in his youth. What's the point? Well, you see, there is this fallacy that suggests that sin is for young people. They refer to it as the foolishness of our youth. Hey, listen, that's not so. It doesn't necessarily have to be so. You know, I've I've known some young people who are just on fire for Christ, man. And they don't go move from the left or the right. They're right on that straight and narrow, and they stay on that course. And God bless them. But I want you to think about this. Let me give you a couple of examples. Moses, when he was leading God's people out of Egypt, and they were traveling through the wilderness for that period of 40 years on one occasion. Remember, Moses became frustrated and misrepresented God. And he left the people of God with the impression that God was angry with him. And so remember, on that one occasion, he took the rod that was in his hand and he struck the rock. He was rather to speak to the rock and it was to bring forth waters to sustain them there in the wilderness. But it was a misrepresentation of who God was. God wasn't angry with his people. Oh, yes, they were complaining and murmuring and they they had these lapses of faith, right? But Moses was all frustrated. You know, how many times have we read you know, after the people cried out, Moses, Moses, you've taken us out here in the wilderness to die. And Moses had had it. He was ripping the hair out of his head. You know, God, you've given me these people. <laughs> you know, and in his frustration. And so anyway, Moses' sin, when he struck the rock, misrepresenting God. Now, when he when did he do that? Well, when Moses first went into Egypt to stand before Pharaoh to demand that He let God's people go. Moses was 80 years old. It was during the latter part of his life, when he was an old man. Let me give you another example. David, he was in his 50s when he took Bathsheba, that is another man's wife, and impregnated her. Solomon, here's another example, was old when he went on in his lust quest. I can't even imagine this. 700 wives... And 300 concubines. Okay, I'm not even going to comment on that. Because every time I do, I get into trouble. Listen, the point is, folks, deal with sin and deal with sin now. That attitude, you know, when I'm old, I'm going to get around to it. You know, when my body calms down, when I've done everything that I was hoping that I would be able to do. Yeah, because Christianity is for old folks, isn't it? Oh, uh, listen, you may never get around to it. You know, I got to tell you something, in counseling, I don't know how many, how many times I've, I've gone over the same things, the same sins, offered the same counsel to the same people, and, and they seem like they never get around to ever changing their lives or dealing with their sins. And, you know, that whole attitude, hey, you know, when I get older, I'm going to deal with it, or oh, I'll get around, you know, to dealing with it then. Hey, listen. That's a lie of the devil. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12 and verse 1 exhorts us to remember God in our youth. But let me embellish that to add, remember God also in your middle ages and in your old ages as well. So what's the point? Well, none of us are ever past temptation or the need of God's sustaining grace. I mean, given our gravitation towards sin, it is only the grace and the power of God which enables us to triumph. You know, let me give you an example of this. I think about the words which Jesus spoke to his disciple Peter. And remember now, Peter, in this discussion that he had with the Lord, had been walking with Jesus for over a period of three years. He was one of Christ's first disciples. And he thought himself to be strong. He thought himself to be able to stand against the wilds of Satan. And on one occasion, remember when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his leaving them, he spoke about a time when they would all deny him, and that they would be ashamed of him, that they would be offended because of him. And how did Peter respond? He said, "Maybe these lightweights, you know, will be offended." but I will never be offended. And so, you know, you read that and you think to yourself, you would never catch Peter doing what Noah did here in our text of scripture that we're treating, right? But then again, you know, on another occasion, and this kind of blew me away the first time I, I read it. It's recorded for us in Luke's gospel in chapter 22 and verse 31. Jesus, in his conversation with Peter, mentions how that Satan had desired to have him and sift him like wheat. Oh, great. (laughs) Great news. Boy, that just made Peter's day, I'm sure, you know? And listen, let me tell you something. What the devil wanted to do to Peter is absolutely the same thing that he wants to do to you. That is, if you're making a difference in bringing about and establishing God's kingdom. If you're not a threat to his kingdom, well, then he'll let you just play at being a Christian. You know, you can go to church and you can stand during the appropriate time, lift up your hands and sing your favorite songs, throw a couple of dollars in the offering plate, you know, and just basically you're a Sunday morning kind of a Christian. But when you get serious about your walk and your relationship with the Lord and are committed to striking a blow against the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, let me tell you something, he wants to get to you and he wants to sift you like weed. You can be sure of that. So how did Peter, how did he respond to all of this? But the idea here is that if Jesus, and, and then he goes on here in his conversation, he says, okay, Satan wants, desires you and wants to sift you like wheat, but Peter, here's the good news. Peter, I've prayed for you. I wonder how many times when we weren't even aware of it that Satan had focused in on you, zeroed in on you, right, and wanted to sift you like wheat, and then our great mediator, right, Christ, prayed for you. And I believe that he prays for us. I believe that he prays for Rick and Mina. I believe that he prays for Cameron and and Patty and my wife and Diana and myself and my children. I believe that. I believe that he intervenes for us in, in prayer. And listen, if he didn't intervene for us in prayer, if he didn't intervene for Peter in prayer, Peter would have been toast. Peter would have been a spiritual derelict if Jesus hadn't strengthened him. Peter would have become nothing better than a castaway. Listen, you can be sure after Peter's fall, he learned, in fact, he did deny the Lord, as you know, three times before the cock crew. You can be sure after Peter's fall, he learned that it was so important to stay close to Jesus and depend on, Upon him, to depend upon the power of Jesus, to depend upon the strength of Jesus. Listen, gang, even in our best condition, we cannot meet Satan. But in our weak and debilitated state, sinning far more than we live victoriously, we are able to conquer him. That is the devil. Why? Because Jesus has given us the victory. Folks, listen. Noah fell, and so can you. So, what's the answer? Stay close to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're young, middle-aged, or old. It can happen to the best of us. So here's the counsel. Stay close to Jesus. Now, that brings us to our second point, and that is the curse of Canaan. Now, let's go back to our text, verses 22 and 23. And i got to tell you something. This is very controversial, what I'm about to share with you. And there's been a lot of speculation as it relates to actually what's going on here. And I'm just going to do the best that I can possibly do and offer a couple of suggestions. I don't want to be dogmatic about it. But I actually think that I have the spirit. And I think I have the correct interpretation of what's going on here. I'm just going to offer it to you and, and you draw your own conclusions. But in verses 22 and 23, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So he became aware of Noah and his drunken condition. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, so as a result of Ham's sin, his son Canaan is cursed. What's that all about? Okay, well, hang in there. I know that it's extremely puzzling. What was so terrible, first of all? What was so terrible about seeing his father naked? And why does that merit Noah's curse upon Ham's son Canaan? I mean, what does it all mean? I mean, there's no clear evidence that Ham did anything other than see his dad naked. Although it's been suggested, it's all according to who you read. Some of the commentators have suggested he did all kinds of crazy things to Noah in that drunken condition. But I don't think that there's anything to warrant that interpretation. And I don't think that we should read anything into the text other than what's recorded for us here in Genesis chapter nine. Listen, most likely... The sin of Ham lies in the way that Ham reacted to finding his father in this drunken state. You say, how would I come to that interpretation or conclusion? Well, in comparison, notice the way that the other two sons related to this particular situation of their father being drunken in that condition. You see, unlike his brothers, who wouldn't even look at their father naked, drunk, lying there on the floor. Remember, they took a sheet and then they started walking backwards, farther behind them, and then covered his naked body, you see. Right? Completely different way that they related to this whole situation. In my
0: father's house There's a place for me In my father's house where I love to be. Oh, my when something gets close to an ending, we naturally turn our attention to the beginning. When a child is about to graduate, we look at baby pictures. When a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death, we go over the story of how we met. When we pack up our stuff and move away from a house, we remember the first times we walked in the door. And as we draw close to the end of days it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, HarvestNYC.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's HarvestNYC.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcasts. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time here in my father's house.